doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment we're speaking to Jim DiEugenio. Hello Jim. Good evening, Len. Good evening. You're in Los Angeles, I'm in Vancouver. What's you know, the, it's kind of cool down here. I hate to say it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Rub it in. What's cold for you? What's cool? 80? It's like about, no, no, no. It's, it's around at night. It's getting to be like 55. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. And during the during the day, it's about 65. Oh, well, it is February. It should yeah. be cold. I hear Australia is having a gigantic heat wave, though. Yeah. A heat wave? 40 degrees Celsius. 40? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. So, no, it's cold here. All right, what's new in JFK research and on Kennedys and King? Okay, first of all, please, if you have not written a letter about Sirhan, we have the whole action alert right up there. So we give you step-by-step how to do it, and we need you to send either by email or by snail mail. We need you to send one copy to the parole board and one copy to his lawyer, Angela Berry. And this is getting, time is of the essence now. Okay, we're into February. So try and do it ASAP. I'm, I'm really calling in some chips on this because I, it's really the last chance we're gonna have here to get one of these guys off, okay? We know what happened to Oswald. He never had a chance, all right? James Earl Ray, they wouldn't even take him to a hospital, get a kidney transplant. They let him die in jail instead. Okay. And now Sirhan is the last of these stooges. Okay. That we, now, but there's a possibility of getting There's a wonderful lawyer, Angela Berry. She really knows her stuff. This is really her, uh, her specialty are these parole hearings. And there's that other woman also. What's her name? Jen Andro or something like that. Yeah, Jen. Yeah, and she was she helped Sirhan a lot. Okay, prepare for that hearing. Then that gutless coward Gavin Newsom, but she's challenging that in court. And also, this is a new hearing. I think it's like March the twelfth. So this is a new hearing. He's going to have to do this all over again. But if he gets overruled in court, that's it. That's it. Sirhan will be able to leave. All right. And now this is going to be a joyous night in Pasadena when he comes home. So let's all chip in, please. 
do as much as you can is for a great cause. All right. Now, the Russell Kent article, you interviewed him, right? Yes. He was on Black Op Radio. His article is number one. The article I wrote about his book is the number one rated article at Kennedy's and King. You know, you did the interview. I think it's a good book. It comes at the medical evidence from a different angle, from a really original, different angle. It's, it comes at it from the click. You know, the bad guy in the book is obviously Russell Fisher. And it comes at from the control that Russell Fisher had. There's only one thing I wish he would have put in there that he didn't about Russell Fisher. And I'm sure you know about this, right? Russell Fisher did the medical exam on Paisley, right? John Paisley, CIA yeah. guy, found floating. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well. And re remember what Bernie Fensterwald said about that one? He says it's a pretty strange way to commit suicide, jumping overboard with weights around you and a gun to your head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what the mafia said. You know, if you control the coroner in a town <laughs> right. and they and they write suicide, there's no trial. Yeah. And so Jim Hogan has a, in his book, Spooks, has a, a, a couple of really interesting pages. And he makes the argument because wasn't there a book called Widows? Yeah, by Trento. Remember that book? It was about uh, the CIA guys who died mysteriously. And, the, and their wives left behind. Well, that was one chapter in the book. She was not even convinced that was Paisley. She wasn't even convinced that was her husband. And you know what Nagel said, right? Richard Nagel said, about, they found out Paisley was a double agent. And that's why the CIA got rid of him. You know, so there, so that's, I wish he would have put that in there. But, be, but even besides that, it's a very interesting book which uh, I really would recommend, you know, that uh, most, you know, if, even if you're not interested in the medical evidence, it's an interesting book. All right. Another article we have up. Did you read this one by Chad Nagel? His encounter with, of all people, Howard Willens. He worked for Howard Willens as a, a kind of intern clerk, and he helped Willens write a book. Very interesting for people who are not aware of Howard Willems. Oh, okay. How, okay, that, I, that's a good point. Let me say this. If you recall, at the first meeting of the Warren Commission, Bobby Kennedy was not there. Nicholas Katzenbach went in his place. And at that very first meeting, Richard Russell started to suspect there was something in the air. Uh, he started writing notes to himself, which we showed from the University of Georgia Library. Well, Katzenbach didn't show up at the next meeting. And what happened is he installed Howard Willens as his representative. And it was Howard Willens who did the hiring. And Sylvia Marr, in her papers at Hood College, she had done some research on this. And she said that by the end of the summer of 1964, the Warren Commission was on the verge of capsizing. Because most of the big guys, as they called them, the senior councils, had left because they, they weren't getting paid enough money. They were all high, you know, high paid lawyers who didn't want to work for those you know, government wages. They had left. 
And they had left all the work to the junior council who weren't that experienced. And so Willens came in and saved the day. He hired, if you can believe it, he hired two young guys who I don't think one of them might have just graduated from law school a week before. The other guy hadn't even graduated yet. And Willens hired him between after he completed his classes and before the commencement. And you know what their job was? This is incredible. He gave them two of the most important jobs there were, a biography of Jack Ruby and a biography of Lee Harvey Oswald. And that's how he saved the Warren Commission. So Willens, there's no doubt, was a very, very influential character. He's still around. And in my opinion, see, if you study the structure of the Warren Commission, you have at the top the Warren Commission, the seven guys who were appointed by Johnson, okay? Then you have Rankin, J. Lee Rankin, who's the chief counsel. In my opinion, if you were doing an organization chart, you would then have Willens. And his right-hand man was Norman Redlick. Then you have the senior counsel. Then you have the junior counsel. Then you have staff members. That would be a good... But Willens was a very important character. I don't think there's any question about that. He used to have a diary online of his days when he was with the Warren Commission. And in one diary entry, he gave away the store. You know, I've always said, if you remember, that the Warren Commission was made up of what I call the troika. This is the power structure from Washington to Wall Street. Alan Dulles, John McCloy, and Jerry Ford on one side. On the other side, I call them the Southern Wing, and that's Russell, Cooper, and Boggs, okay? And I've always made the argument that far from being unanimous, there was a split in the Warren Commission between these two groups, all right? I've always said that, and I will always say that forever because I believe it's the truth. And it's no coincidence that it was Russell who was the first guy to denounce the Warren Commission in public, followed by Cooper and Boggs. Boggs was almost, wow, he was rabid in his criticism when he came out uh, uh, on the floor of Congress. All right. But anyway, my point has always been that there was a deep split in the middle of the Warren Commission. One day in his diary entry, Willens gave this away. He wrote word to the effect that he had a, there was a certain problem uh, with the writing of the commission or something like that, or an FBI report. And he said, I took it to Warren and I got his okay on it. And then he wrote, now all I have to do is get the other three commissioners. Let me say that again. He said, I showed it to Warren and I got his approval on it. Now all I have to do is show it to the other three commissioners. I was stunned when I read that. My God, it's a confession. He's admitting that the Troika ran the commission and the Southern Wing didn't mean anything to him. So this, this is Howard Willens. He's probably, well, I really don't think there's very much of a question about it. He's the highest living member of the Warren Commission. And I'll tell you this, the House Select Committee was a very mixed bag, okay? But if you take a look, I think it's in 
book 11, where they interviewed some of the Warren Commission. And it's a very interesting discussion with Burt Griffin and Howard Willens. Burt Griffin admitted that Richard Russell was more or less off the reservation, that he was running his own investigation. Okay, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And he's also complained bitterly about the delays they would have to experience, okay, in getting responses to questions from the FBI and especially the CIA. And they asked Willens about this. They said, look, here's Burt Griffin, because this is what happened. Whenever you were made a request, it went through Willens. It went through Willens, okay? And Willens was then responsible for going ahead and filing the request and then sending it to the proper agency. Well, they asked him once. They said, you got this request by Burt Griffin on such and such a date. You didn't send it out for 15 days. (laughs) And then they said, but what's even worse is you didn't get a reply from the CIA for two months, you know? And this is what I mean. This this was Willens, okay? He was a very major player in the whole way that the Warren Commission functioned. And it's an interesting article by Chad Nagel, okay, about his experience with Howard Willens. Do you want to see uh, if he wants to come on? Oh, sure. Okay, okay, I have his email. I'll ask him. He, he's, he would be much better at talking about his article than I would. Okay. Because what it is, it's really a character study of this guy. So I'll see if he wants to come on. Let me make a little note to myself about that. Now, another very interesting article is by Jerry Simone. And this is a fascinating piece. And I, and I really mean that. It's a fascinating piece. Because... You know, it's one of everybody's favorite subjects, which is Oswald in Mexico City. In 2021, I believe around the Christmas time, a magazine, online magazine called The Conversation, wrote an article. JFK conspiracy theory is debunked in Mexico City 57 years after the Kennedy assassination. Now, let's ponder this for a moment. The JFK conspiracy theory is debunked in Mexico City 57 years after the Kennedy assassination. You would think that if a magazine is going to run such a presumptuous, such an imperious kind of headline, they would have all their ducks in a row. Okay, you would think that, wouldn't you? Because Mexico City is, of course, a very, very, very interesting Subject, okay? I mean, that's putting it mildly. Now, let's lay the groundwork. Lee Harvey Oswald allegedly went down, okay, let's take it from the top. He leaves New Orleans in the last week of September, goes to Texas, gets on a bus down through Nuevo Laredo, goes down on a bus down to Mexico City, checks in at the Hotel Del Comercio, and then he interfaces with the people at both the Cuban embassy and at the Soviet embassy. And then one night he goes out to this college, this nearby college, and he meets with a group of students. 
around which was Oscar Contreras Lertig was one of them. Now, I don't think anybody in their right mind who reads the Warren Commission report would be satisfied with the way they treated this rather important subject. Why is it so important? Because there were two things that convicted Oswald in the public mind right after the assassination. One, as Jefferson Morley says, is the pictures and films that were taken of Oswald leafleting on the streets of New Orleans in the summer of 1963. And he was depicted as a lonely sociopath uh, who was, of all things, trying to drum up interest in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee in New Orleans, of all places. All right. So that's one of the things that was used to incriminate Oswald. The other major thing that was used was his alleged activities in Mexico City, where he was supposedly having conversations with Cuban with the Cuban diplomats and in the Soviet case, allegedly with a KGB agent under Russian diplomatic cover called Valeria Kostikov. All right. All right. Though when those things got in, and this was Saturday, Friday was the New Orleans stuff. On Saturday, this whole thing about Mexico City got in. Uh, and how Oswald was trying to get an in-transit visa to Cuba, then to the Soviet Union. All right. Okay. And so it, obviously the implication being that after he killed Kennedy, he wanted to get out of the country. All right. To a communist place. All right. And so this was the paradigm that was set up in the public mind. All right. Well, what happened is over time, and I believe Jim Garrison was the first one to do this, to declare this, okay? He looked at the underlying evidence in the Warren Commission volumes, and he said, words of the effect, you know, everything about Oswald in Mexico City is covered, you know, by a time lapse about the time of the Druids in England. I believe this is the place where we'll catch the conscience of the king. You know, and what he meant by that, of course, was Hamlet, when in, that, in Shakespeare's great play, he puts on a play within a play, all right, and he uses this to snuff out who he believes is the killer of his father, who was his stepfather. So that's what Garrison was talking about there. But as time went on, more and more material came out about this, all right? And unfortunately, the legendary Lopez Hardway report was classified, all right? When I asked Eddie Lopez about this, I said, why couldn't you get the report into the volumes? And he said, Jim, the first day we went through the report, it was me and Danny and Blakey and three guys from the CIA. It took us six hours to get through the first three pages. All right. 
Well, so Blakey threw in the towel. He wasn't going to spend a year going through because it's 360 pages. Okay, going through the Lopez report. All right. And so that's how it got classified. But Danny and Eddie talked to people. All right. And word slowly seeped out about what they had discovered about Mexico City. And to say that it was interesting is quite an understatement. All right. One of the things they found out and that dribbled out was that the CIA could not produce a picture of Oswald at either embassy, which means 10 separate exits and entrances, excuse me, entrances and exits, and there isn't one picture of Oswald. Now, we know from Bob Tannenbaum what David Phillips said about this. He said our camera wasn't working that day. Well, the problem with that is that there were three cameras outside the Cuban embassy and two outside the Russian embassy. And the, and Danny found out and Eddie found out that there wasn't any out of sync camera. The most amazing thing about that is that one of the cameras outside the Cuban embassy was called a pulse camera. This was high tech stuff, you know. What, why was it called the pulse camera? Because it was so sensitive that whenever the door opened at the Cuban consulate, it would change the air pressure. And this camera was linked to the air pressure, if you can believe it. Don't ask me how they did it, okay? But that's how they did it, okay? So that anytime the door opened, it would take a picture. Now, the first about the first 10 pages of the Lopez report, if you read it, is really boring stuff because they're examining all the camera coverage. They spend like three pages on the cam on the pulse camera because what they're trying to prove on those pages is that it's impossible to believe the CIA story here, that they wouldn't have any pictures of Oswald with all this sophisticated camera coverage. All right. And this is obviously what the CIA did not want to get out. All right. OK. Now, the second problem, of course. Is that is the problem that the CIA sent up a tape. What they said was Oswald in the Cuban consulate. OK. And then when the FBI heard it in Dallas. They told J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, this voice on the tape. It's not the guy we're talking to in detention here in Dallas. So there was no picture and the voice did not match Oswald. Okay. Now this gets even worse as time has gone on because it then eked out that Sylvia Duran only identified Oswald by name when she was sent a film of Oswald in New Orleans she said wait a minute this isn't the guy this isn't the guy man same with Eusebio Askew one of the guys working in the Cuban consulate he says no 
That's not the guy that I met. And the third one was this Oscar Contreras. Oscar Contreras was actually, I believe, the first person in 1967. He said, I met Oswald. Okay. And that's not him. They all described, and I don't have to tell you this, Len. They all described a short blonde guy. Okay. They all described a short blonde guy. Okay. And Oswald was about average height and he had brown hair. Okay. So it's very hard to reconcile this description with the Oswald that we know. And as time has gone on, even more has come out about this. All right. There is, for example, two CIA plants inside the Cuban consulate that the CIA interviewed twice. They, they, they wanted this, they wanted these people to identify a picture of Oswald. Did you see this guy in the consulate? And the, and they go, no, they were very disappointed with that reply. So they went back a few days later. They said, oh, like, are you really sure that you don't recognize this guy? And he says, no, he was never here as far as we know. Okay. So that was another big body blow. Now, that didn't get declassified until 2017. All right. So the CIA, you know, they're going nuts trying to figure out how Oswald got down here and how Oswald got away. They start checking out the private airports. Okay. They start checking out taxi. They can't find anything. Okay. And so to make a long story short, what they did is they turned this over to the secretary of the interior. All right. And his assistant, Mr. Ochoa. Okay. And they, if you read David Joseph's or John Armstrong, Okay, you, you will see all the the absolutely immoral and unethical stuff that these guys did in order to cover their tracks about Oswald. Okay, to me, as of this day now, if you had to put me up against the wall, you know, I would say I don't think Oswald went to Mexico City. How do you feel about it? Well, yeah, I, I when you read about the the bus ticket, the two women that say they saw, right, you know, how right. he got there, and and the whole the whole um, uh, you know, bullshit of the whole thing. You when you read, you go, this is lie. This this is not true. And then this, the whole thing is made up. Even yeah. getting there or getting back home, if anybody looks into that story, it's just so unbelievable that mm -hmm. that's what you say. Well, if I don't believe. This is how he got there in a greyhound, and and they signed his name, and you know that story. But for those who don't, it's just a, it's just yeah. a, a fairy it, tale. So then you go, box. right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. How did he get there, or how did he get back? When you look into it, it's a fairy tale. So then, yeah. if you're going on, well, well, the only pictures there is, uh, you know, they talk about being recognizing as a football player, an American football player, right? And. Uh, um, <laughs> And, you know, the cameras don't work. And then, you, like like you mentioned previous shows, I think they actually listened to the audio tapes and they go, this isn't the, the voice of the guy that we have here. You know, mm -hmm. the, the audio doesn't match up the photo. So so it's almost like saying, 
well, what, what makes you think that I should believe he was there? Mm-hmm. And I think. Well, he, and then what about the uh, what about the uh, the tapes where the translators say, "Guy spoke awful, terrible Russian." I mean, come on. Oswald spoke very good Russian. Okay, we know that from about four different witnesses. Rosaline Quinn, who he went out with on his last days in the Marine Corps, she had taken a year of Russian at Berlitz. She went out to dinner with Oswald because they wanted to test. He said, this guy spoke better Russian than I did. Okay, he could throw sentences together on the run. Then there's Ernest, Ernest Titovitz met him in Russia. I met Titovitz in, in Washington and I asked him, I said, did he speak decent Russian? He goes, he spoke good Russian. Okay. Then there was Marina and then there was George DeMornschild. They all said that he spoke good Russian. So what, who is this guy who can, speaks broken Russian, but he speaks good Spanish? I mean, <laughs> So this is where it starts to get really silly. Okay. You know, so obviously the other side was feeling pretty put upon about all the evidence that was coming out about whether or not Lee Harvey Oswald ever went, okay, to Mexico City. So what happened is one of them got together with a guy named Gonzalo Soltero professor of narrative analysis at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de Mexico. I hope I didn't slaughter that name too much. Commonly known as UNAM. And he's the author of a book called Conspiracy Narratives South of the Border. Okay. All right. The article in the conversation was based upon chapter three of his book. All right called Oswald Does the Twist. That's obviously a reference to Garo de Paz, the woman who said she saw Oswald at a twist party. That turned out to be BS also. Okay. All right. Now, what they're saying in this article, what what Mr. Soltero is saying, and what Jerry Simone researched, is that somehow Oscar Contreras could not have met Oswald in Mexico City as Contreras claimed, all right? Now, the reason he says this is that there is a hole in the story of the very man who started this theory about Oswald's Mexico trip, all right? All right, and he says that somehow Oswald could not have been in Mexico City because Contreras was a cub reporter for a newspaper in Tampico, okay, which was something like 300 miles away from Mexico City, all right? And so this is what Jerry Simone did, okay? He knew somebody who was fluent in Spanish, and he read the articles that Contreras was submitting for the Tampico paper. And it was really a gossip column, more or less. Well, there is more than enough time for Contreras to be in Mexico City between the times of the two entries. 
because one of them is dated September 22nd. The other one is October the 6th. Oswald purportedly uh, arrived in Mexico City around September 27th, and he left on October 2nd. So to me, and I think to anybody else, you know, 300 miles away is not that far. And uh, I hate to say this, Mr. Soltero, but they had telephones also. So they could have telephoned the stories in. And and he uh, and Jerry does a very nice job here showing what the articles were. And they were more or less, you know, social columns, a wedding engagement. OK, a wedding scheduled to take place October the 5th, a yacht excursion. OK, uh, and another yacht trip. So this doesn't really I don't, I don't think. And Jerry does a very nice job of putting this together. This does not prove Soltero's argument. There was not a social event in Tampico during the time Oswald visited Mexico City, September 27th to October 2nd. So that could not have prevented Oscar from being in Mexico City. All right. Furthermore, even if there was an event during that crucial period, why could not Contreras arrange for a proxy to cover the story? So it would, and he concludes that it appears the basis for Soltero's repudiation of Oscar Contreras' account is simply not founded soundly. And I agree with that. Also, Soltero tries to make this being as the main conspiracy about Oswald's undocumented time in Mexico City. Uh, and he doesn't agree with that. Jerry doesn't agree with that. He says, the supposed meeting with Kostikov is the real humdinger. Uh, and that's true, okay, because it was supposed to be that Kostikov was in charge of Department 13, assassinations, terrorism, and sabotage. And most people think that that's the reason that he wanted to get the in-transit visa, because he was working with uh, this KGB guy. All right, that's really one of the biggest stories that come out of Mexico City. So Jerry did a very good job on this, all right? And it shows of the mainstream media, because this story got picked up in about four or five other venues, okay? And, and he also mentions the conspiracy about the conspiracy. You know, the whole thing about David Phillips and Gilberto Alvarado, the guy who was supposed to have seen Oswald in Mexico City in September, and he was being paid money, uh, and this got the attention of the FBI and the State Department. But that collapsed later because Oswald was not in Mexico City at that time, and we also know that our, that uh, he and Gilberto Alvarado ended up flunking a lie detector test. All right, so this is a very poor example, and it's really one of the reasons why we should not trust the MSM, you know, on, on anything having to do with the Kennedy assassination. So I thank Jerry Simone very much for giving us that article. And I recommend that everybody please go ahead and read it. All right. Okay. One of the better articles that we've had there. I, I give him a lot of credit for doing a lot of good work. Now, if I can say something, JFK Revisited is still in the top 10 
of the Amazon documentary sales, DVD sales. As everybody who's familiar with the film knows, it was issued on DVD in July. Okay. So just go ahead and add it up. August, September, October, November, December, January, February. It's been in and out of the top 10 for seven months. Okay. Which is really amazing. You know, and so as I noted to some people, usually if a, a book or a DVD of a film um, is on the top 10 list for a year, okay, it gets, it begins to be called a classic, okay? So I'm hoping and praying that we can hang on for five more months, okay? Uh, so we can actually give the film classic status, which is really, you know, and I give a lot of the credit to Paul Blow and that arrangement he gave us up in Quebec, okay? Because that gave us a lot of exposure because we had all these guys coming in from Montreal, which of course is the big city up in that region. It's the second big, well, I don't have to tell you this, the second biggest city in Canada, right? There's Toronto and there's, and there's Montreal, right? Yeah, anyway, but any, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, and, and so we had these reporters coming in, okay? And that one afternoon, the Film Society arranged about eight different interviews, okay? And me and Oliver were sitting there, and they came, and that was the first time I ever did anything like that. They would come in, we would give them a half an hour, and they would file their stories. And Paul Blow, I guess they had a PR company. I guess the Film Society up there had a PR company. And they went ahead and they filed a report. And by the way, our our uh, distributor, distributing company did the same thing for us when the film was being distributed in Europe. And he said that this exposure from those, because we did eight interviews while we were there and we did two others on the phone before we got there, that that reached literally millions of people. Okay. All right. And that would be both French and English because Montreal is a bilingual city. All right. So I, I think that's part of the reason, okay, that we managed to get such a blast off in the because we were number one for three weeks when the when the film first came out. Okay. So anyway, that's a kind of uh thank you note to Paul Blow, okay, and the, the great work he did on this. All right. And it was um it was me, Oliver, and Leno Sanic uh who were on hand for that wonderful, wonderful festival. All right. Um okay, now let's get to some uh, letters because I'm always getting them no matter what. All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right. Let's try and get them in order. This goes back to January. All right. January the 19th, Johnny Cairns, very good researcher. Okay. Johnny is trying to address the whole issue about Oswald 
did not go to Irving on the weekend of November the 15th. And so this letter begins on the 19th, and he gives me two more installments on the 20th. I could just imagine Ruth saying to Marina that Oswald couldn't come out to Irving on the weekend of the 15th, November the 15th, which she did, but he could come out on the 21st of Thursday, which he had done before as a compromise. This would guarantee Oswald's alleged proximity to the Payne garage the night before the murder. Okay. All right. According to the Warren Commission report, Oswald, this is Johnny again, Oswald did not go to Irving on the weekend of the 15th because Marina allegedly told him not to come because Michael Payne, with whom Oswald did not get along, would be there to celebrate his daughter's birthday. Also, Marina felt that because he had stayed for three days the preceding weekend, he would abuse Mrs. Payne's hospitality if he returned so soon. Okay. Now he comments, Ruth and Michael's daughter Sylvia's birthday was on the 17th. Why would a party presumably held on the 17th bar Oswald from attending the Payne household on the 15th to see his family? Surely, if relations between Lee and Michael were that hostile, Oswald would have simply left the Payne residency for a few hours while Michael was there. Or Lee could have went back to Dallas early on the 17th. If Michael's relationship with Lee was so hostile, then why did Michael permit the man to spend weekends in his house that he owned? Good question. The reason for Oswald's exclusion for the Payne residence on the 15th or the 17th seems odd to me. Okay. All right. Now he continues on the next page. I found this in Armstrong's book, Harvey and Lee, and I found it to be very interesting. On November the 15th, Oswald phoned Marina from work and asked if he could spend the weekend in Irving at the Paines. Marina told him that one of the Paines children was having a birthday party. Mike Payne would be over and that would not be convenient. Sylvia Payne was born on November the 17th. The question becomes, if Lee spent Friday, November the 8th, through Monday, November the 11th, and Irving at the Paines, then how could Lee not have known that there was a party? That's a good question. There was a party for one of the Payne children to be held during the weekend of the 15th. Parties are not arranged overnight. They require planning, invitations, etc., so this event could possibly have been weeks in the making. I also am very dubious that Oswald's persona non grata status was the idea of Marina Oswald. I don't think it would be unfair to say that Ruth did not like Lee. This is quite clear in her behavior exhibited during interviews and was clear to me watching her testify at the London mock trial. Although I can't prove it, I have a strong suspicion that it was Ruth who put the kibosh on Oswald's visit to Irving on the weekend of the 15th, possibly as a pretext to get him out on the 21st. I don't like dealing in speculation, but as I originally said, it's just a question I wanted your opinion on. Also, on October the 31st, 1963, which was a Thursday evening, Oswald cashed a check in a grocery store in Irving. So Oswald 
had previously been being at the pains on a Thursday. That's a pretty good point. You know, Johnny always has some pretty well-argued angles, okay? And I guess what provoked this, and I'm sure you know this, Lynn, Max Good's film has really raised some hackles. You've had him on, right? Yeah, right, for sure. Uh, Yeah, I think his film has really kind of raised consciousness about Ruth and Michael Payne. And that's really good because I think it's much overdue. All right. Um, It was done by in probe when we were running probe as a paper magazine. You know, it was done by Carol Hewitt, Steve Jones and Barbara LaMonica. But then it kind of dropped off. Okay, I put some of it in my book, Destiny Betrayed. But there's more of it in uh, in Jim Douglas's book. And I think that's what Max picked up on. Okay, was the stuff in Jim Douglas's book about Ruth and Michael Payne. So this is really an, an interesting letter about about that whole weekend apparatus that has used the bludgeon Oswald so much, you know. All right, Mr. Eugenio, thank you so much for answering my questions on Black Op Radio. This is Rick Sering. Your insight and work is always fascinating to me. One last question, if you'll indulge me one more time. I ran across a hard-to-find documentary on YouTube called Everything is a Rich Man's Trick. I was wondering if you'd seen it, and if so, do you have any thoughts on what is presented in it, and is there any validity to any of it? You saw that, didn't you? I think I've seen all uh, nine, uh, well, is it nine hours long? Or I've seen, I, 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 don't, I think it's seven, isn't it? I, I've seen a bit of it, uh, and uh, I haven't seen the whole thing, so I hate to, to be wrong about it, but it's quite a lengthy uh, endeavor and you know uh, it's one of those things that I believe is presented you know everyone talks about this John Judd used to talk about it you know there's left wing conspiracies and there's right wing conspiracies okay Carol Quigley for example the great teacher who was a professor for Bill Clinton you know he was like a kind of right wing conspiracy guy did you ever hear that story of what he did on the first day of class? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> All the students come in, okay? And Carol Quigley finally goes up to the podium, and he says, this is the, supposed to be the textbook for the class. He shows it to every kid in the class. Then he walks over to the window, opens a window, and throws it out the window. Okay. <laughs> He goes, we're not going to be using that book. <laughs> okay. And so his his book, Tragedy and Hope, which is, I think, something like 1,600 pages long, okay, is essentially a view from the right, okay, of the Council on Foreign Relations, Rockefeller and Morgan. And everything is a rich, if I remember this correctly, this is the drift I was getting from this everything is a rich man's trick. And I thought some of it was good. I thought some of it was really kind of strained. Okay. All right. And, you know, I can't give a definitive answer about it because I didn't write anything about it. Okay. I didn't think it was that much related to the topic that me and you dealt with. So I didn't really do uh, an analysis of it. You know, it's a mixed bag, I think, on the whole. 
All right. Um, January the 30th. Hello, Lynn and Jim. Alio DeMeo. Happy New Year. I hope everything is going well for you and your families. First of all, I would like to commend you, Jim, for your appeal to fans of Kennedy's and King and Black Op Radio to go and send an email or letter to the California Parole Board in order to su- support Sirhan. I have done my small part, and I hope he finally gets his parole. Thank you for that. To my question, it is related to potential shooters in Dealey Plaza and who actually were the ones who pulled the trigger. I have read a few books on this subject. We talk a lot about the conspiracy and the cover-up, but the subject of naming the shooters does not seem to be behind the priority list of many researchers. In a way, it is understandable. In the grand scheme of things, the real culprits are in the shadows, and whoever actually pulled the trigger is only a pawn in their game, as Bob Dylan once wrote. Bob Dylan once wrote. They're like tools that can be taken out of a box and used by craftsmen as needed. That being said, I can't help being curious about finding out who the most probable trigger men were. I have heard about dubious characters like James Files, Mac Wallace, Jack Lawrence, Charlie Harrison, interpen mercenaries like Lauren Hall, William Seymour, and Larry Howard, the so-called badge man, Alpha 66 members, and mobsters like Nicoletti and Rosselli. The list is never ending. Let me say one thing about that list. I think every one of those is a BS story. Okay? Everybody that was named there, I don't think has any kind of credibility to being a very serious candidate for being one of the assassins in Dealey Plaza. Files, Mac Wallace, Okay, the whole thing about the fingerprint, that was proved to be wrong. Okay, and Wallace was not in Dallas that day. Okay, Jack Lawrence, very dubious case. Charlie Harrison, nope. All right, Hall, Seymour, Lawrence, that was all inspected by the House Select Committee. All right, Um, Lucien Sarti, that was from the men who killed Kennedy, the first version. That ended up being not credible either. Okay. Mobsters like Charlie Nicoletti, nope, Johnny Rosselli, that's ridiculous, okay? All right, and the list is never ending. In your opinion, who do you feel are the most probable shooters, or in case you don't want to speculate, which researchers do you feel have done the best job with actually trying to name names and put together the most believable shooter list? Once again, thank you for everything you do, and keep up the good work. Alio de Mayo, Montreal, Quebec, which is just what I was talking about. Okay, I just gave you my opinion, everybody, that they named. I, I don't think any of those have any credibility. This is what we know, okay, as far as my knowledge base of this goes. Sergio Acacia Smith was in Dallas, okay? He reportedly had diagrams of the sewer lines in underneath Dealey Plaza. Bernardo de Torres was also supposed to be in Dallas, okay? And there might be evidence that Emilio Santana was in Dallas. 
Okay, because he was in the car uh, with Sergio Acacia Smith and Rose Jeremy, headed to Dallas from Louisiana. Now, there's also a report of Sutre being in Dallas. Sutre, of course, was the uh, no John John Sutre, the OAS. Guy. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The OAS. Yeah, guy. I got it mixed up before. Somebody corrected. Me. Okay. So those, to me, are the ones that you have some evidence for. Okay. Now, whether or not any of those guys was involved in it, I'm not really sure. But at least you have some kind of a case to put them there. Okay. Uh, And we know that none of those people like JFK very much. All right. We also know that there was an Alpha 66 safe house at Harlandale. All right. So that's the kind of uh, I think you can go from that basis. OK, because that, that has some credibility to it that that you you can actually argue something there. And I have to say a very long time ago. When the. ARB was in Los Angeles. I had a letter from Gordon Novell that he had written to Mary Farrell. Okay. And in that letter, he said that the guy behind the picket fence was a CIA mafia hitman, a former agent of Des Fitzgerald. And he said the weapons used were directionally silenced rifles designed by Mitch Warbell. Now, Everybody listening to this show, I hope, knows who Mitch Rebell was. All right. Mitch Rebell was one of the most sophisticated, most advanced designer of CIA rifles, silencers, ammunition, etc. And it's really funny because in his book, Spooks, Jim Hogan talked about Rebell and he talked about a directionally silenced rifle, how that works. And how it can throw off your hearing as to where the shot is coming from. And as I was reading that, I was reading that, I was wondering, that really seems to be what happened in Dealey Plaza, where you get people from, you know, one side saying it came over there and people from the other side saying it came from over there. Okay, because Warbell had, uh, Carol Hewitt had a diagram that Warbell had, drawn to sell the rifle to the CIA. And he had it all mapped out in like a 180 degree half circle as to where you'd be able to hear what position you'd have to be in to be able to hear a directionally silenced rifle. All right. Okay. And so I thought that was very, very interesting. It's too bad Carol Hewitt's not on the case anymore. Okay, so that's that's a little bit that I know about the subject. All right. And like I said, I, I'm not going to go any further because I can't be very definite about it. All right. February the 13th. <coughs> Terry Smart, one of our most loyal. He's he's from in your neck of the woods, right? Yeah. Yeah. From Canada. Hi, Jim. While researching the assassination of Mrs. Payne, 
which I think is an excellent compliment book to JFK Revisited. He shows Oswald stating, they have taken me in because I lived in the Soviet Union. That's true. He did say that. Perhaps this is just a nervous man trying to explain an incredible situation to him. But think for a moment, telling the Dallas police reporters, the general public, the world that he lived there, how could that help him? Particularly in such a right-wing milieu. But maybe he was saying that to a particular audience, the administrators of the false defector program, of which he was a willing participant. Maybe he was sending a clear message that he would tell the tale, and that was his trump card. Never thought of it before, but it could be a reasonable reason to say such an inflammatory sentence. Well, okay, that's one way to look at it, that he was trying to get out a message to the people who really knew who he was. But there's also, see, the thing is, he could have also been trying to say uh, as close as he could that they're framing me because they think I'm a communist. Okay. All right. Because I went to the Soviet Union, you know, and that's as far as he could go at that point in time. All right. Um, I mean, how many people in the Texas School Book Depository worked in the Soviet Union? I mean, visited the Soviet Union? You know, probably zero. Okay. I'd be willing to bet that the whole population of Fort Worth, you know, you'd get about that number also. And so that's probably what I think one of the things he was trying. But if you combine that with the I'm just a patsy, you know, you put those two together. And that's pretty clear about what he was trying to say. You know, you know, I mean, whenever I see those films of Oswald, one of the most telling moments is when he thinks he hasn't been charged with the assassination of Kennedy. You know what I'm talking about, Len? Yeah, yeah, everybody does. That's the moment, yeah. right? And and then they go, yes, you have. Okay. <laughs> and then that expression that goes over his face when he's when he says that, I mean he he really must have felt like Oliver said in the JFK movie, like a character in a Franz Kafka novel. Okay. I mean, what is happening to me? Who are these people who are accusing me of this? You know? All right. So that's that's always been, you know, a real crystalline moment. All right. Uh, and the fact that, you know, the guy was in detention for 12 hours. He answered a lot of questions. Okay. That's not usually what guilty people do. All right. Okay. And, and, you know, and just remember that, you know, he asked for a lawyer. All right. And he couldn't find the guy he wanted. All right. And the ACLU didn't do a very good job in furnishing him one. All right. So those are all things I believe that are indicative of a guy who is simply not guilty of the crime. That's the way I feel about it, at least. 
All right. So anyway, that's it for tonight, Lynn. Okay. Thank you okay. very much. I think people will thank you all the time when they write to you, but for you taking the time to answer questions and uh, telling us what's new with uh, documentaries and uh, your work with Oliver Stone and Rob Wilson. And uh, so, yeah, thanks. Okay. Thank you all very right. much, Lynn. All Have right. a good night. All right. You too. Thank you. Good night. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. Today we are joined by attorney and author James Johnson. Hello, James. Hello. We understand that you had a lot to do with getting the book Flight from Dallas released, and that there's quite a story that you know the, the background to, and that's what we'd like to talk about today. Of course, this has to do with the JFK assassination research. So I'd like to start off by just asking you to give a brief background of yourself and how you got into this topic, and we'll talk about the book from there. Well, as you have stated, I'm a now retired attorney, but I have been a trial attorney here in Wichita, Kansas most of my life, except for a short period in the military and going away to law school. And I have been a volunteer attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union for a number of years and handled some very interesting cases under the auspices of ACLU, one of which had to do with a possible assassination of Lyndon Johnson when he was coming here after he became president and coming here to give a speech. And so I had a very um, interesting uh, time in representing that person who was an SDS student. I began following, shortly after the assassination of Kennedy, the lit literature that was beginning to come out about it. And the more I read about it, uh, the more I felt that something was wrong, and I followed the reports of the various committees that were appointed to investigate different aspects of the assassination, starting with the Warren Commission and the others, other two, or actually there were three. But the more I got into it, the more I felt that Kennedy had been killed by a conspiracy that had been covered up by the federal government. And in the middle of all of this, I carried on a full-time law practice here in Wichita, and uh, one day I uh, received a call from one of my daughters who said that she had seen a person by the name of Vincent being interviewed uh, on one of our major television channels, Channel 8, which is the public broadcast channel. And this interview had to do with with Vincent and his experience, which led him to talk to me. I had difficulty getting him to talk to me because he felt that he had given a, uh, a statement to the reporter for Channel 8, and he didn't want to interfere with uh, anything that that reporter was planning to do. So I called that reporter, who is a friend of mine, and um, asked him about it, and he told me to, to go right ahead, that he wasn't going to attempt to publish uh, anything about the story. So I called uh, Mr. Vincent and got him to come into my office, and I took a 
approximately 50-page statement from him about his experience, and uh, I began my own investigation after I had completed taking his statement uh, to find out if I could corroborate what he was telling me about various aspects of his experience and the assassination. So I started my own independent investigation, and much of that is set forth in the book, Fly from Dallas, so I published it myself, and the publishing date was in 2005. So that's how I came to write the book. It's based upon considerable investigation of my own, which I describe in the book. Of course, I ordered uh, documents, aerial photographs, um, information concerning the flight characteristics and the fuel capacity of a C-54, which was the plane that Vincent rode in. So I spent a lot of time making my own investigation before I decided to put it into print. So uh, that's how I got into it. Okay, so first of all, uh, where is the book available today? Well, it was originally published uh, under the Trafford Publishing Company uh, I'm looking here to see in 2005, and I did have another publisher that was interested in it, but then backed out of it, and I, I finally, uh, Trafford um, decided that they would would like to uh, get into it and uh, publish uh, some of their own their own copies of the book. Well, I'm just wondering where people today can get the book, or if they can, you know, people listen. Well, they can get it from Trafford. And you can probably get it uh, from bookstores uh, who would probably have to order it from Trafford Publishing. Okay, well, I'll look at the Trafford website, and I'll try to make a link for it so people interested uh, people can find it. All right. Okay, so the first thing is, why don't you give us a, just an overview of this story so you know we can get into some of the details because the idea here and and i'll let you describe it what in a nutshell is the story that vincent related to you all right well to pick up where i left off after i completed my own investigation uh, based upon the information that vincent had given to me uh, i was convinced it was uh, true and that he was telling the truth and his story actually started, this was a, a sergeant in the U.S. Air Force at the time, and he had been stationed uh, at a small base out in uh, Colorado called ENT, E-N-T, Air Force Base, and he was a career person and counted on getting uh, promotions regularly and that sort of thing. So when... He had about 18 months yet to serve on his last enlistment. He decided he was going to go to Washington, D.C. and find out why he hadn't received the last promotion that he felt he should have received. So he, uh, he personally paid for and flew to um, Washington, D.C., to Andrews Air Force Base, and he left Andrews uh, and went to the Pentagon, and was interviewed there by uh, an officer who's mentioned in the book. And the officer told him that he would look into his case and that he would be hearing from him. 
So Benson uh, went back out to, to Andrews Air Force Base, which, as I think you probably know, is uh, on the outskirts of D.C., and got on uh, a flight uh, back to his base in Colorado. And after several months had gone by, his wife had been working out in the garden uh, there at their home, and she was told by a neighbor that uh, Vincent was being investigated in the neighborhood. And, of course, she immediately uh, told uh, Mr. Vincent about it, and Vincent began to inquire to see what was going on and who was investigating him and that sort of thing but couldn't get any uh, information as to who was behind the investigation. Then, a number of days later, he received a packet of documents from uh, Washington, D.C., and later turned out it was from the uh, CIA, and he was told that he had to fill out the documents and fill in the questionnaires and so on, and and that his wife would have to do the same. So after a little bit of protestation about it, they did go ahead and, and complete the questionnaires and the uh, documents and mailed them back, waited to see what would happen. Well, something did happen. He received an order, an official military order, to report to Washington, D.C., to Fort Myer, and phone a particular phone number which was given to him and that was the only information that he had but it was a cop it was an official military order and of course i in my investigation i got a copy of that order and reprinted it in the book as all along with photographs of the benson people and his relatives and that sort of thing so um, anyway benson uh, flew to Washington, D.C., uh, to Fort Myer, and uh, waited there, and he was picked up the next day and driven to Langley, which is the headquarters, as you probably know, of the CIA, and uh, which has been the CIA headquarters uh, for the world since it was set up in 1947. So uh, he was interviewed, uh, given tests, psychological tests, physical tests, and that sort of thing, and then uh, was told that he would have to come with them, meaning he'd have to go with the CIA. Well, Vincent was only uh, approximately a year and a half from retiring, and uh, he told them that he had a house that he had purchased, uh, in uh, Colorado Springs, and that uh, he wanted to run out his service career uh, uh, there. And uh, they said, well, uh, you have to come with us. Uh, but he never did agree uh, to go with them uh, while he was uh, being interviewed in Langley. So several days later, after Vincent had returned home, he received another military order, of which I have a copy, and it ordered him to go back to Andrews Air Force Base and to Fort Myer and call a number. And uh, 
So he did that, and he called the number, which was a CIA number. They told him that uh, the order required him to fly to a base in Nevada, which uh, had a CIA base already in operation, uh, and it was I later discovered it was uh, Area 51 after this became public. And so Vinson uh, ended up in Area 51, where he serviced C-54s and other types of uh, Air Force aircraft. And it was interesting because the plane that flew him from uh, Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C., did not have any U.S. Air Force insignia on it, which he thought was highly unusual. And it did have a design on the tail, which which uh, we describe in the book. So Vincent ended up uh, his military career at this uh, secret air base that was operated and run by the CIA. And he was uh, uh, under military orders to to serve out his term with the CIA base in uh, Nevada. It's it was near Mercury, uh, Nevada, and I've received some information that the CIA has disbanded that base. But it's uh, I haven't I haven't confirmed that officially. But it was located a few miles from Mercury. Nevada, which is in the Nellis Mountain Range Reserve. So um, beings that he was under, he and his wife were under secrecy agreements. Uh, They both uh, refused to divulge anything about their flights to anyone until the Assassinations Records and Review Board, which was, I think, the last official committee set up by the U.S. government to collect documents relating to the Kennedy assassination, made its findings public, and then Vinson uh, decided that he would go public at that time. Now, Vinson did check with uh, our local congressman uh, at that time, whose name was Dan Glickman, who is no longer a congressman, but uh, who is still alive, and and is uh, working, uh, I believe, in uh, in L.A., but I'm not sure about about that address. Glickman told Vincent that uh, he felt there was no reason why Vincent shouldn't go public with his story, and so Vincent did contact the reporter at the Wichita Eagle, which ran a short review of it on the editorial page. And that's when I called that reporter after my daughter told me about it, about seeing it on the television. And I proceeded with Vincent to take the 50-page statement I've already referred to. And I won't go into the details of my investigation because they're all set forth in detail in the book. So uh, that's how it started. Right. Now, the story is, though, about November 22nd and this flight that Vincent uh, was on with someone who he said looked extremely like Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, that's correct. On on this uh, flight, uh, uh, 
back uh, uh, from Andrews Air Force Base, he landed in a airport in Dallas, and I have tried to pin down which airport it was because uh, there were several airports uh, around Dallas back in those days, and I think one of them was later taken over and made uh, into the Dallas Municipal Airport. But in any event, it was on this flight back that they landed and they saw these um, two men get on the plane. One was described as uh, a fellow with Cuban characteristics physically, and uh, Mr. Vinson had been quite uh, familiar with Cubans having been in contact with him during his military career. And the other person um, looked strikingly like Lee Harvey Oswald. And, of course, Vinson didn't realize the significance of Lee Harvey Oswald until he got home and saw the interview on television where Oswald was arrested. And Vincent was watching the program with his wife and said, that looks like the smaller person that got on our flight. And, of course, his wife protested and said, well, he's been arrested. It couldn't be him. Of course, uh, Vincent said, well, I don't know about that, but he sure sure has a double there. So um, that's how he came to know about Oswald. But Benson passed away about six months ago, I found out recently. But I have a pretty thorough investigation of my own, and I am convinced that, that he saw the actual killer, alleged killer, because I don't think Oswald uh, himself shot anybody. And as you might guess, I've spent quite a bit of time researching in the, into the Kennedy assassination, which uh, Vincent's experience was just uh, a part of. So, what questions would you have? Well, I guess what people would be interested in, if this, this was a CIA-type flight, these are CIA-type people getting on this unscheduled stop, and from the account... These guys got on the plane. No one spoke a word. It was a little bit unusual, and that's why he remembered this. And then looking back into the, uh, the, the same day a president is assassinated, you know, someone could say, did you notice anything strange that day? And uh, he'd say, yeah, you know, the, these guys got on. You know, if the guy wasn't Lee Oswald, he was a double. He was someone who looked just like him, you know, very right. similar, right? Right. So, you know, I think that's where people, if they want to get the book, will start having their own questions about, well, this doesn't seem to be then this one lone nut shooting the president. This seems to be some kind of carefully orchestrated teamwork here. People moving in and out of assassins to a city. And how could how could they get out of town? Well, they got out of town on a military aircraft and and not normal military you know, this is clandestine. Well, that's right. It was a CIA aircraft, a C-54, and it's well documented that the CIA had used C-54s in their operations around the world. And I, I refer to that in uh, in my book. I have documentation for it. So the, the, when he got on the plane, um, uh, no one was on it but two personnel, uh, got on a few minutes after Vincent got on the plane, 
And as we point out in the book, they were not carrying a manifesto, which is a, a document which reflects information about a particular flight. And he thought that was highly unusual, and the people that got on the plane did not have Air Force uniforms. Uh, they did not have any identification that was uh, visible from the outside. And they never said a word uh, to Vinson and went up and took their positions in the cockpit. And the plane took off and flew west. And uh, when it was uh, somewhere over the Nebraska border, it was reported over the PA on the plane that the president has been shot. Well, everybody knew that the president was planning to go to Dallas and... Uh, but that's the only information that Benson was given on the plane. And uh, when the plane landed, he uh, uh, got off the plane with his uh, duffel bag, and uh, no one ever said anything to him. And he asked the policeman or air police which is what they're called in the Air Force, where he was because he couldn't see any lights and no one was around and everybody on the plane, the, the pilot and co-pilot, just had walked away. And he was told that uh, he was in Roswell, New Mexico. And he said, well, I, I thought this plane was uh, going to a base in Colorado, so I'll have to... Uh, get a bus, I guess, and take it to, uh, uh, to get back to my home. And the air policeman told him, well, you can't go anywhere right now because this base is under security, uh, under a security alert. No planes can land and no planes can take off. And, of course, Vincent pointed out that the plane that he rode in there on was uh, had landed during that alert. And the air serviceman said, well, I can't explain that. But so Vincent had to take a bus, a public bus, uh, and um, ride the bus to get back home. So it's kind of a fascinating story. Right. Further your investigation of this, uh, you think that there was something there. You, you thought that this guy didn't have to make anything up. This is just a, an anecdote of that November 22nd of, of something strange there. And... Um, you know, where do you think this leads to? Do you think that this is uh, an example of one of the assassins or two or, or people just con connected with the assassination getting out of Dallas that day? Uh, well, I'm not sure w what you're asking me, uh, Len. Yeah. I guess I'm saying that, you know, to write this book, you have to feel that, that these two guys that got on that plane were connected with the assassination that day. Yes. That's, that's right. I do feel that way. And uh, the information that has been made public since the assassination has confirmed that there was another person who was obviously trying to set up Oswald as the patsy because this other person had made several appearances in and around the Dallas area, even going on a shooting range and shooting at another person's target and then identifying himself as Lee Harvey Oswald. There have been, as I say, several instances uh, well documented of somebody uh, pretending to be 
and Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, that's what I was getting at, that this doesn't necessarily mean that these guys were the shooters, but th this was something suspicious that people were making a getaway from the crime scene using this clandestine network where you didn't have a ticket, you didn't have to show ID, you just had to be informed that they we're picking up two customers here. These guys get on a plane and there you go. Well, that, that's right. I, and of course, I firmly believe that that person that was pretending to be Oswald and who looked like Oswald was one of the shooters at the assassination scene. And I'm convinced that there were at least three shooters on the scene with six shots being fired. Of course, there are books uh, that have been written about these things that I'm saying. Now, Vincent, did he have any further interest in the assassination, or, or was this just one anecdote that after you say after the AARB 1992, was it? The Assassination Records and Review Board allowed people to come forward, and after he, he spoke to your uh, congressman, he felt that uh, this is something people should know about, was there any more area to investigate in this? Is there, is there anything more to it that we can follow forward with? Okay. Well, you mean uh, uh, today? Yeah, I guess it's one thing for for him to come forward to to I think illuminate this one area that that aircraft and and uh, clandestine bases come and people come and go without having to right. go through customs to have any clearance or or any airport security. So as long as you realize this goes on still today, this is how these kind of people move around. And I just wonder that if there was anything further that uh, people are investigating, or is this just one, it's just an incident worth writing about, talking about, and I guess we have to leave it there. Well, there is a reference to my book uh, in a relatively new book that's just uh, come out authored by a person by the name of James W. Douglas. Are you familiar with his book? Oh, yeah. Jim Douglas. I've had him on many times. JFK and the Unspeakable. Yes. Well, his review of the evidence is one of the best that I have read, and he, he does refer to Vincent's experience and our book about it. But uh, Douglas's book is, um, I think, the latest and best book on the sum total question of who killed Kennedy. Yeah, it really is, uh, should be required reading. I mean, it's fantastic. And even that is the tip of the iceberg. But I think at least there's a book you can show someone who's neutral sitting on the fence, not quite sure what to make of history. Say, read this book. It'll save you about 20 or 30 other books. I mean, it really puts things in perspective. And as far as, like, real legitimate information, it's hard to come by because people planning this kind of effort do not leave paper trails. There's not going to be a lot of, uh, you know, evidence. that they First of all, they try to cover up their crime, and then they get the Warren Commission and other people to obfuscate the whole thing. And then, thirdly, they're blaming it on a, on a patsy, on Lee Oswald. So I think for... Uh, people at least to come forward with some of these observations that in this case you know on a day where the president's killed something suspicious happened is uh just worth knowing that when you get 10 or 15 of these things together and you start you get to see the fingerprints of the intelligence community 
and not a lone guy, uh, Marxist or Leninist or whatever he was supposed to be painted by the Warren Commission. I, you know, he he's not. This Lee Oswald is uh, is also working in the intelligence community. And uh, I think he is set up, like he said, he's a patsy. Well, <laughs> yes, I think most uh, independent and neutral investigators would have to come to that conclusion. I have been asked by people who have read uh, Fly from Dallas um, where I learned my investigation techniques and all that stuff. And I've been a trial attorney uh, all my life up until the time I retired. So you kind of learn how to investigate uh, a case, and uh, much of that experience was very valuable in, uh, in my representation of Vincent. I actually was his attorney for a period of time, uh, and uh, I wanted it that way because I didn't want other people trying to mess up my investigation. So he agreed that I could act as his attorney without pay to conduct my independent investigation. And I have found some very interesting things about uh, how the U.S. Department of Justice works and operates and over the years, and I'm not sure they've changed a great deal, but uh, I had a case involving an SDS student here in Wichita that was arrested and charged with attempting to kill Lyndon Johnson when he came to Wichita to make a speech. And I ended up representing this SDS student uh, for several years, and we had two trials in federal court before I got him acquitted. But uh, the Department of Justice uh, pulled some shenanigans uh, in those trials that I would never have expected would would happen. But I feel that the Kennedy assassination is the greatest conspiracy to be unsolved in in modern history. And then I, I think when you when you mention unsolved, that kind of underscores that actually it's right in front of your face. Kennedy's enemies had him removed, and anyone just looking at the evidence. Uh, seeing Alan Dulles appointed to the Warren Commission, there you go. His enemies, and the CIA was one of the top enemies. These guys said he's got to go, and they did it. And um, yet, like you mentioned, the Justice Department, it remains unsolved, or the blame is, as long as you can blame Lee Oswald, people will stop looking at the government. And, you know, well, it doesn't... Well, that's right. And, of course, the committees that uh, the government has set up. Of course, the Warren Commission was uh, the first, and they, the Warren Commission did discover lots of valuable information. But their conclusion and final report, of course, was a total falsehood. And most people that are independently minded and have investigated agree with that. But but there has really not been a government-sanctioned committee to investigate the killing of President Kennedy since the Warren Commission. And the Warren Commission, of course, is, has been disproved by most most writers. 
there's still a few that shocked me. Um, Bugelosi came out with a book about two years ago and uh, makes a very good review of evidence, but then he draws the same conclusion as the Warren Commission. Turns out to be uh, just a con job. So it's still going on. Well, that's a polite way of putting it. (laughs) I have a lower opinion of Bugelosi's work, but it's really insulting. I mean, it's one, you're being polite and calling it a con job. It's an insult to your intelligence to continue waving this flag of the Warren Commission. I mean, even in 1978, I think, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, in their final conclusion, they said there was two people shooting. That's right. right. They so, found a conspiracy. Right. And, and then people just, they're unable, intellectually unable to grasp this idea, so they cling to anything they can, looking at Commission Exhibit 399 and saying, it could have done it. I mean, anyone who's ever dropped a bullet on the ground, you know, you'll see a little dent or something. You know, you can't you can't break bones, all the wounds, and then expect that bullet to be, and what people have called it, I think accurately, is pristine. That bullet, if shot into anything, was shot into a bucket of water. I mean, they don't show you the other, the other bullets where they demonstrated where they shot it into... Uh, a goat carcass and other things and breaking ribs and it was like mushroomed just right, un- right. unbelievable and and you get the posners and the bullioses and the other people who cling to the idea that it just it has to be true because it's very uncomfortable for them to think then well if it isn't true that means they've lied about everything and not only that it doesn't mean the whole government is involved but every important instance of the government Every justice department, the whole idea of democracy really is right in front of your face. The rug is pulled out. You're slapped with it, saying it doesn't matter what you think or do. We're going to say that the lone nut killed him, and and, uh, that's what we're going to do, and you're not going to have a trial. And I think in 1978, when they really were going to have uh, Richard Sprague and others really dig up information, they were removed right away by... uh, the other, uh, you know, I, I should caution my words here, but uh, I don't think too highly of uh, Blakey. Blakey is a, another fraud. I mean, how can you look at, you say, look at the at the evidence, but then the conclusion you draw is it's not supported by the evidence. So, well, you know, Blakey yeah, always wants... correct. Yeah. All he wants to do is say that the mob did it no matter what. And then I heard lately that he's somewhat embarrassed that he feels that he was lied to by the CIA. How dare they lie to him? How naive can you be for a grown man? Well, uh, you know, uh, the CIA carried on uh, murders around the world uh, back uh, in those days. I don't think it does that any longer. But, yeah, they were were a gang uh, that uh, were sanctified by the federal government to carry out killings of the heads of state, uh, you know, in Guatemala and other places. Oh, yeah, many, many other places. And I think that it may be that Congress should not, not that they were sanctified, they just didn't know what they were doing. So when you have a clandestine branch of the, quote, CIA, and the CIA is an agency it's working for someone, it's working for a client, it's working for a wing of the Defense Department, and the Department of Defense is the thugs for corporate America. 
So when the big corporate interest says, you know, you know, we need to change leadership in some country because then they're putting uh, taxes on our fruit or they're going to, uh, like in the case of Cuba and Castro, they kicked all the corporations out. So when these corporate interests get together, they say, we, we need to use our strong arm thugs. They send uh, uh, people that were connected to the CIA. And, you know, nowadays it seems to be done through a... Uh, these guys in in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're all uh, working for some other company. They're not actually military anymore. They're uh, contractors. Right, right. Which is kind of just a euphemism for a mechanic, you know. They don't have to subscribe to any uh, Geneva Convention, anything like that, any military court. They just go out and do what they're told, and they're highly funded, well-paid. Blackwater and that. I think they just changed the name, though, so they wouldn't be keep getting the word Blackwater in the news anymore. And, That's uh, right. They even changed their name. <laughs> you know, but it's a, it's the same corporate interest of saying we need some muscle to to change uh, change things, and if we can't do it politically, uh, we're going to send in what someone has termed the jackals to go and make sure these things happen. So, anyway, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting story, and I think it just kind of lets people know that this is how some of the people could have come and gone. They say, well, we heard a few people got in a station wagon. That station wagon drove away. Uh, Roger Craig, you know, says he saw some people. And how could these people disappear? Here's one instance. You know, unmarked flights, in and out, no flight schedule, you know, no names, no ID. You have to be in this, quote, secret team to even know that flight will land for you. And who can arrange that? You know, who who can arrange these flights in and out of cities where there's no right. customs, there's no no anything. You, you know, know, it's it's ironic. I've um, done quite a bit of traveling uh, around the world, and even uh, the uh, pe- even people in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, now Russia, of course, or in Cuba, and some of these other countries I've visited. They all agree that the Warren report was a fraud, and they aren't even Americans. <laughs> and yet, here we are, our people are still being conned over this assassination. And I, I really think that sooner or later our government will admit that, well, maybe Oswald really didn't do it, or that there were other people helping him. I mean, in a sense, they've already admitted that through one of the committees, as you just pointed out. But, hell, people in these other countries, uh, they don't believe it. They don't believe the Warren Commission's conclusions. Yeah, and the fact that that uh, Tom Hanks and his company is going to support Vincent Bugliosi by making a 10-part miniseries on this fraud, fraud of a, of an intellectual effort here, Oh, yeah, I heard about that. I didn't know anything about it until a couple months ago, but uh, you know, I've I've heard about what they're planning to do. I did have one more question for you that might take five minutes. Do we have a little more time? Oh, sure. Okay, well, what I did want to ask was about you were one of the few people that I understand have done any investigation in the sewer system in Dealey Plaza that are some of these pipes large enough for people to crawl through. Is that correct? You were asking about the sewer systems? Yeah. Did you go to Dallas to check out the possibilities of the uh, diameters of some of these pipes? That that's... Uh, well, yes, uh, we did. Uh, I, I uh, went with uh, 
another person, Carl Williams. Uh, Carl is a resident of Wichita, and uh, he's also interested in uh, the assassination. But, yeah, we went down there and uh, actually uh, removed uh, a big sewer lid that weighed about a ton, and Carl got down in there with a flashlight, and there was no way a full-grown man could have gone through those sewers. And, you know, there's this uh, theory that somebody fired from the opening on the street, the sewer opening on the street, and we looked at those, and the opening would, uh, you could get down in there, but to fire a any kind of a weapon would have been a very questionable job. I just don't buy the, the sewer explanation. Did you talk to anyone in the sewer department? Were they able to help you in this investigation? Okay, wait a minute, let me think. Because I understand you guys ended up getting the sewer maps and all, and uh, of 1963 to go over. Yes, I think I got that through the mail. But, well, I do know what you're talking about. Right, I'm just trying to jog your memory here that, that you did actually get the actual maps of, of the area and you tried to go through there to see if the idea is to explore the, the sewer escape route theory. Could that be possible? And you, in your experience... You found it uh, very improbable that anyone could fit through these pipes. Correct. Right. Correct. And I even, um, on these airfields around uh, Dallas and Roswell, I received some maps, aerial maps from them, and uh, one of them was an aerial photo of all of the ABM missile sites, which kind of surprised me, (laughs) which uh, there were quite a number around Dallas. But I was kind of surprised to get that in the mail, you know. These pipes, anyway, some of them go from Dealey Plaza toward the Trinity River area. The floodplain, is it called? So anyway, that's the idea that people thought, well, if they crawled through these pipes, if they were in Elm Street, if they were around there, they could just get way out of of there, and then that's how they would make their way out. And uh, right. that that's yeah. just an anecdote on your experience. The pipes are 14 to 16 inches. It's just unlikely. But that story has been circulating that there's a suspicion that someone was shooting from in a drain pipe looking up. And as a matter of fact, I think what obfuscated that is that when that police officer pulled over to, to park his bike there, he kind of parked it right over it, you know, so no one really could look inside. That, that doesn't mean there was anyone there. It's just you know, another interest. I just did want to talk to you about it because you were one of the few people, I guess, that have gone down there and taken measurements and looked at it and and tried to decide, you know, it's not everything is uh, possible. We have to, you know, let other researchers know that some of these things have been looked at, some of them have been investigated, and this is one area that it does not look like there's any feasibility at all. That would be my conclusion, certainly, and as well as Carl Williams. I'm sure other people have done the same thing about the, you know, looking and measuring the the uh, sewers. Right. There are people new to the case that they come across something and they go, oh, I wonder, maybe a guy who was there. Maybe that's how. And I think at least the, the interest is here. If you have kind of, you know, uh, any imagination and intellect, you think, well, as soon as I put the idea that Lee Oswald didn't shoot, then who did? 
And where were they? And how many? And then that's where we're really left with some bit of speculation because there is no there's no record of an official investigation of how many shots and where as soon as the Warren Commission said it came from the sixth floor. I mean that joke they they, they just left off all other investigation. Like you know, the right. case is solved that day by four o'clock. You know uh, teletype messages are going back and forth. We have one man, we have him. Although they didn't charge him till midnight. Um you know, they seem to say that uh, the case was already wrapped up. But I just want to make sure that uh, that I did discuss that with you, that, you know, you had an investigation of something that, that turned out negative, and this investigation of the pipes, they're just, I mean, maybe a small kid, 14 to 16 inches, I don't know, you know. But I think, you know, based on the Zapruder film, the shots were coming, you know, above, you know, in front to the right of Kennedy and, and maybe from the second floor, from behind, you know, there's one shot that hit the chrome strip of the windshield inside the car. So, of all these deflections and that, and, you know, how many gunmen is almost immaterial. As soon as you say, well, it's more than one gunman, then it's gunmen. And what's their objective? To remove the president. They seem to have done it with impunity. I mean, you know, there's been no trial. I mean, it was... Uh, That's right. Jack Ruby uh, evidently killed uh, Lee Oswald, and that's the whole end of it. You know, that's that's the end of the investigation, and everyone go back to sleep. Uh, this year, well, Jack- I uh, I really don't believe that that the government will admit anything, admit any responsibility. That is the executive branch uh, for the assassination, but. One one thing that really impressed me about James Douglas's book is it's the first book where he concluded that uh, Kennedy was killed by the national security state, and I I think that's exactly true. Yeah, I mean uh, that's where all the evidence leads. You know, I like to say to people who are new to the case, I say, listen, Kennedy was removed by his enemies. Do you want to do an investigation of who his enemies were? And we can make we can talk about ten of them, you know, starting with the CIA, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Federal Reserve, almost everyone in the banking concerns of the the Pentagon and the you know industrialized military complex that Eisenhower spoke of. So this is where his enemies are coming from. You know, talk about big steel, uh, U.S. steel, and and all the you know opposition to him, and not Lee Oswald. And it's just kind of I think part of growing up to understand how the world works. If you find it uncomfortable, fine, but, you know, you, you better look into it. It's just like uh, saying there is no mafia, there is no organized crime, you know. And I think that's what Hoover tried to do. He tried to say, oh, we, we, there is no organized crime, so don't worry about it. <laughs> well, I, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, how did you... Uh come across uh, my book, uh, Flight from Dallas. Was that from reading Douglas's book? Well, it was or recommended I... to me from Carl to actually get in touch with you. I, I'd seen the book out a while ago, and I certainly have read anything uh, Jim Douglas has done. And so I think like with this story and the Chicago plot, when you're familiar with that, when you see all these anecdotes of behind-the-scenes if it didn't happen in Chicago or Miami or in Dallas, it was going to happen somewhere else. They right. were they were moving on Kennedy with this clandestine network. 
and you know at least a study of history will illuminate this that this is what happened in the past so it's kind of strange that with you know in today's world you Barack Obama uh, runs on I'm going to shut down Guantanamo I'm pulling out of Afghanistan and Iraq and all that and now he's in and it seems that he's somewhat handcuffed he's not pulling out of anywhere and he's announcing uh, troop increases so you almost you, you, not that I I don't want to say the wrong word, but I, I feel sorry that if you hear that he starts to, to push that I'm pulling out, I'm, I'm doing these kind of moves that Kennedy did, he'll find himself removed. I think Absolutely. nowadays... I've been, I've been afraid of something like that ever since he was elected, which I still find hard to believe that we elected a black man as president. Of course, I'm elated, but uh, I fear for Obama. Right. Well, I, I think he's probably realized that he has to play ball. But this is just a part of understanding politics and and big corporate interest and, you know, just how the world works. So there it is. If you go against the big guys, you'll find yourself removed. I think now they're a little more sophisticated where they're bringing down people by uh, a character assassination, uh, even pulling down people. They always seem to have some kind of sex scandal that when they need to pull the card out and there it is they've got the guy and uh he's been set up years ago and just a, a number of these guys if everyone's got some skeleton in their closet closet and uh and people know about that and uh if they don't play the pull the party line uh they'll be embarrassed and there you go they're out so well maybe in another oh 30 40 years uh, they, we may get the federal government admitting that, gosh, that really was a conspiracy. I know that, you know, the committee, uh, the, the last committee, uh, no, it was a 78 committee that found that there was a conspiracy. But, well, you know, listen. that's the thing. We should know right now. We should look at history. We should analyze, you know, what happened and say, this is what we know, and it's a little bit, uh, I think, troublesome to, to see a, a Posner or a Bugliosi or these other people continue with the with the charade of of a lone nut, and and that really does not go any further for uh, you know furthering an idea of democracy and Western civilization as we're getting better. We're getting we're not getting better if we're living in denial here, and it becomes like a nineteen. Uh, George Orwell kind of thing where the, they just tell you what they want you to believe and everybody just buys it. You know, it's uh, propaganda. When you think about other governments, you go, well, I guess I can see that. They think, you know, right here in North America, what, they lie to us? No, they wouldn't do that. Well, they're doing it. And I think one of the other people that I uh, look up to, just for shooting straight, like from Jim Douglas, is uh, former Governor Jesse Ventura. Seems whenever he talks on the topic, he shoots right from the hip. He says, yeah, your government lies to you. And I know, I was in government. And they lie to you every day. And, um, you know, what are you going to do about it? Start voting in better people. It's hard, but, uh, you know, one step at a time, first thing is to understand that this was a crime and not some, you know, political statement from a Lee Harvey Oswald or something, you know. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, I was amazed uh, during my trial experience to see the things that uh, the federal government would would do, and uh, particularly in this case where um, the SDS 
student was trying to assassinate Johnson, the Department of Justice actually, in effect, kidnapped uh, one of our key witnesses and kept her incommunicado for several days before the last trial. And uh, I thought I was going to have to uh, continue the trial because I couldn't find one of our key witnesses. And then we found out that uh, she'd been in the custody of uh, the feds and the, under an order sent out by the district prosecutor. So, you know, the federal government will do these things uh, when they feel like they can get away with it. Yeah, yeah. The, the poverty of that effort, you know what I mean? Like, if you can't win the case fairly, why did you make the case? And you're going to have to kidnap other witnesses to keep the truth from coming out? Well, under the federal rules, you see, that existed back in 67, they could take a witness into custody and allegedly to prevent the witness from disappearing or being killed or having anything happen to them. But in my case, with my in this case I was telling you about, she was a key witness for me and my client. So they used the rule uh, to prevent her from testifying, but they finally gave in when they found out that I wasn't going to capitulate and let them get away with it. Well, there's an example. Okay, uh, James, I think we've covered uh, the, the two things I wanted to talk about, the flight from Dallas and, and your investigation of the sewer system. So is there anything that I didn't get to you'd like to bring up at all? Well, not really. I don't know if uh, if you know that um, I took a, uh, it wasn't a deposition, but I took a visual deposition of uh, Vincent where he appeared and we put him under oath and uh, I in interrogated him about his experience. And, you know, I've got that on tape in case, well, I told you that he passed away about six months ago, but Vincent was a, a very convincing witness. Right, okay. So if anyone, you know, questions the validity of what I have and the evidence that I um, got together to support this this book, why I can make it available. I did that for Douglas. Excellent, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, Jim Douglas has done such good work that that's good that uh, there's stuff that he's written about he can back up, and the same thing with you being an attorney, realizing you have to uh, have safety copies of these kind of depositions and uh, make sure you have it on the record. So years from now, if people say, well, I just don't believe that ever happened, uh, you know, you can prove <laughs> Well, that's right. That's why I, I did it. And uh, I want to be able to prove that Vincent actually said these things, you know. So anyway, Len, I have enjoyed it, and uh, if anything comes up in the future uh, uh, that you want to ask me about, or if I discover anything else, why? Yeah, we'll I'll, keep uh, in touch. Okay. Yes. Thanks so okay. much, then. All right, thank you so much for the interview. Okay, Len. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.